1: questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking from the provocative to the technical we're offering insights you won't want to miss so tune in to the future of work a prop g pod special sponsored by canva you can find it on the prop g pod wherever you get your podcasts
0: hey listeners i think most of you know by now that i wrote a book It's called Doing Justice, and it's a New York Times bestseller. If you want to learn more about it, or buy it, head to doingjusticebook.com. Thanks for your support. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. It's very hard to have outsized
1: power if you're just seen as a selfish, nationalistic country. Unless you stand for something larger than yourself, an aspiration that transcends national interests. You're, you're kind of stuck. And my worry is that the Chinese are building this idea.
0: It's larger than just uh, China, I think, or at least it's seen as that. That's David Ignatius, award-winning columnist for The Washington Post. He's covered foreign policy with a focus on the Middle East for over 25 years. David and I discuss how the U.S. ended up in the current standoff with Iran, why diplomacy still matters, and why Trump might, hopefully, want to avoid conflict. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Simply Safe. Alarm, worry, anxiety, panic. Fear has many words, but there's just one word for exceptional home security Simply Safe. They know it feels good to fear less. Award winning 24 7 protection for your home through it all blizzards, blackouts, and burglars. Safe has won awards from all the tech experts. Two-time CNET Editor's Choice winner, PC Magazine's Reader's Choice. It's a wirecutter top pick and called Best Home Security by The Verge. Better yet, SimpliSafe has no contract and no hidden fees. They keep prices fair and honest. Take fear out of your home. Try a 60-day risk-free trial today with free shipping and free returns. Order now at simplysafe.com/preet and have your home protected within a week. That's simplysafe.com/preet.
1: Hi Preet, this is Larry in Denver, Colorado. Would you talk for a minute about the difference between evidence and proof? All I'm hearing is that there's no evidence of collusion when what I see is Evidence out the wazoo and all over the walls of collusion. Could you speak to that for a minute? Thanks
0: Hey Larry, thanks for your question as I think of it Informally evidence and proof are kind of synonyms for each other And I think the confusion lies in the way some people have tried to spin things to say There is no proof of X or there's no evidence of X just because a prosecutor like the special counsel or someone else makes the ultimate decision not to bring a charge The ultimate decision not to bring a charge simply means that the prosecutor does not believe there is proof or evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to convince a unanimous jury of the guilt of the person that you're thinking about charging. So when you talk about conspiracy slash collusion or obstruction, there's lots and lots of evidence. At the end of the day, the special counsel, for different reasons with respect to volume one and volume two of the Mueller report, chose not to bring a charge. But you are right to be concerned the people trying to spin the situation as being devoid of evidence. When someone testifies about something, and when there is a conversation between the president and Don McGahn about getting rid of Bob Mueller, that is all evidence. Some people might not find it overwhelming evidence or persuasive evidence. Some of it may be circumstantial evidence, but it's evidence. This next question is in the form of a tweet from Charlie047. Hashtag Now it's reported Mueller doesn't want to testify publicly. What should we make of this? So, Charlie, you know, I'm a little surprised and confused by that reporting myself. To be clear, the report that I read, I assume you're referring to, is that special counsel Robert Mueller's team has expressed reluctance in him testifying uh, reportedly because they're worried that he might look too political. So I don't know if that's the view of Robert Mueller himself. I don't know even necessarily if it's the view of his team. This might be, you know, secondhand, thirdhand hearsay. So I wouldn't put a lot of stock in it. I sort of get the point. What I've been saying all along based on my familiarity with Robert Mueller, both as a colleague and also as a staffer in the Senate when I saw him come and testify a number of times. Bob Mueller doesn't shy away from testifying. Bob Mueller doesn't shy away from hard questions. Bob Mueller doesn't shy away from answering questions forthrightly when a lot of other people in his kind of position and station would hedge or filibuster as we've seen some people do. I've said before and I'll say again, I have never seen a person testify to a Senate committee more bluntly and more forthrightly and more credibly. So you know whether or not they're concerned about him looking political, I don't think that based on my experience watching him, that his demeanor or his approach or the way he formulates his answers suggest being political. You know, And maybe it's the case that things have changed with respect to his perception of the world because of all the ways in which his report has been politicized and his work has been politicized and the attacks on him and the rest of the team. So maybe he views the world through a slightly different lens. Certainly the people around him may, but they're not Bob Mueller. And I still think whether or not he has concerns about how the testimony will be perceived, uh, I think he owes it to the American people and he owes it to Congress to come testify. He's been silent and there have been critics of his silence. There have also been people who have supported his silence. And I think generally overall, it's probably a better strategy given how much noise there is out there and how poor a decision it might be to get into a back and forth with uh, the president, the person who has the largest megaphone and loudest megaphone in the world. But now it's over. And now there are questions about what he found and questions about why he did what he did. And I think he owes it to everybody to come and testify, not behind closed doors, but publicly, as I've seen him do very, very well on many occasions. This next question comes in a tweet from at Poker Bishop, also known as Katrina Muller, without the E. Hashtag Ask Breed. Do you think Congress has the duty to impeach or just the power to impeach? Is the distinction important to this question? So that's a very thoughtful and difficult question, Katrina. And I probably need to think about it more deeply. The duty to do something versus the power to do something. Now, the way I thought about my authority when I was a U.S. attorney and a prosecutor was clearly we have the power to bring charges. We have the power to indict particular people if we thought... It was in the interests of justice to do so. And I suppose overall, we thought there was a duty to do justice and a duty to protect the public and a duty to hold people accountable. Um, I don't know that I ever thought about it as I have a duty in a particular case versus just the power in a particular case to bring a charge. But I suppose, depending on the circumstances, there sort of was. Duty is is a, is a deeply complex, moral, philosophical, I think Question and power less so. Uh, having the power to do something is simply a matter of you having the authority vested in you by statute or some other regulation or a delegation of authority from some higher power. But your question reminds me about another thing I've been thinking about with respect to this, and I, and I tweeted about it this past weekend. I spent all day Saturday thinking about some of these issues and and what I would talk about with Ann Milgram on the Insider podcast and what I might write in that newsletter. And so I tweeted the following, I said, so you're a house dem, you're not sure impeachment is electorally smart, but you are sure impeachment is constitutionally warranted based on the facts. What is the right thing to do? Isn't duty, your word, greater than political speculation, especially since everyone has basically sucked at the latter. Apologize to my parents for the use of the verb sucked. Um, And as I think about your question further, it probably is the case if you have the view that there was overwhelming evidence someone committed some transgression, and you also have the power to hold that person accountable, then I think, yeah, in a manner of speaking, you do have a duty. The reason I sent that tweet is I'm recognizing on the part of Democrats their hesitation on the part of Nancy Pelosi and others. And as I'm taping this on Wednesday morning, uh, there was apparently a meeting of the caucus of Democrats with Nancy Pelosi with various people discussing how to proceed on this issue, this very issue of whether you call them impeachment proceedings or not is unclear, but but what are you supposed to do? And so I understand that as a political prediction matter, if you think the most important thing for America, and I actually think this is correct, if you think the most important thing for America and the world in the next couple of years is for Donald Trump to be defeated in 2020. And then you also think based on your, your reading of you know, semi-ancient history from 20 years ago, that proceeding with impeachment will undermine the ability to defeat Donald Trump in 2020, then I get why you might have some hesitation because if in good faith you're still working towards this important election, you don't want anything to get in the way of that. And so I get that. The problem is, as I said in a subsequent tweet on Saturday, that I was making a point about some dubious calculations I see being made by members, members of Congress. Knee-jerk timidity based on 1998 jitters is not leadership. So on the one hand, if you have this concern about the election and the effect that impeachment proceedings will have on that election, but on the other hand, you have certitude, moral, ethical, and factual certitude, that the president committed acts that justify impeachment, how do you choose? And to me, having thought about it for a while, and just having (laughs) lived life for a while, the first thing is speculative. And people have been very bad at speculating what's going to happen in the future. And so in a world in which the one decision is merely speculative, and the other you feel in your heart and in your mind is certain, you go with the certain, you go with the definite. And you hope that actually changes hearts and minds. And if people understand that you're doing things in good faith, and you're proceeding in a way that is about the truth, and about accountability, and about values, as opposed to scoring political points, if you can do those things in that way, and people can see you're doing things in that way, then I think you need to proceed. And I'm not saying that tomorrow articles of impeachment need to be filed. But what I am saying is if you are a member of Congress and you feel deeply that impeachable offenses have been committed, then I think you can't shy away from moving towards that, whether it's by having hearings along the way to get more evidence and to put more of the picture of what happened before the American people, before you get to a point where you pursue formally that thing called impeachment, but you need to proceed. On the other hand, if you don't think that impeachable offenses have been committed, um, then it's an easy decision for you and you don't proceed. I will note, as we have before, that there is at least one Republican congressman who's very controversial and has his issues as well and may be seeking to unseat Donald Trump in potentially a primary challenge or an independent challenge as a libertarian, Justin Amash. But I think that every congressperson needs to decide for themselves what they think happened here and not to unduly shy away from something because of some speculation about how it will be perceived in a future election. Next question is in an email from Cliff in Toronto, Canada. Hello, Cliff from Toronto. Very simple, pithy question. Pardoned versus exonerated. Preet, please clarify the distinction. Well, it's a pretty simple distinction. Exonerated, as I understand it, not in the parlance used by the president of the United States, who, as I've said before, could go to a Chinese restaurant, look at the menu and says the menu totally exonerates him. Anything that doesn't charge him with a crime um, or proves his commission of a crime, Donald Trump thinks exonerates him. But as I understand exoneration, and I think most other people do, to be exonerated from something is for there to have been proof that you did not commit that act. So, for example, as I describe in my book, there was a situation where an investigator in my office worked really hard based on evidence that he had gathered to exonerate and get out of prison six people who were convicted of a crime they had not committed and were released from jail 17 years after the fact. That's an exoneration. A pardon is an act of mercy by an executive, whether the president or a governor of a particular state, deciding to pardon someone for a particular crime, the law recognizes that the federal constitution permits that kind of mercy function on the part of the president of the United States, but also recognizes that the acceptance of a pardon remains a recognition of guilt in the underlying crime. So unlike an exoneration where one or more investigators and perhaps a court have basically come to the conclusion that, that a person has not committed the crime. There's not sufficient evidence to show the commission of a crime. A pardon is essentially a way of a president forgiving an act that was the commission of a crime. And also, generally, in conjunction with that person, the pardonee, accepting responsibility for the crime and being contrite and establishing, you know, a period of time of good conduct because they've moved on and they've recovered from their past conduct and they've rehabilitated themselves. It is not, unlike exoneration, it is not, a pardon is not, a signification of innocence. You should all know, dear listeners, that as I was answering that question in a serious way, as sometimes is my want, the cafe team has been asking, well, how do you explain the parting of a turkey? Has the turkey committed some crime for which the turkey is now apologetic and contrite? Uh, and, And is it an act of forgiveness in the same way? You know, I don't know. It's not Thanksgiving. Ask me in November. This question comes in a tweet from Matt Bandelt. Hey, Ed Preparara, just seeing you for the first time in a while on CNN, what happened to the beard? Hashtag ask Preet, hashtag stay tuned. You know, it's been a year. I grew it when I was writing the book. I don't know if you've heard. I have a book. I don't know if you've heard. It was published. You should still buy it if you haven't bought a copy. But the book tour is over. Summer is coming. I felt it was time uh, to go back to my normal self. Uh, and also, I think my daughter started to not like it so much. So she asked, and I shaved. I addressed the president's expected appointment of an immigration czar and a special bonus for Cafe Insiders. You know, it's been reported that the president has chosen former Virginia Attorney General Ken Cuccinelli for the post over former Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who made a series of czarist demands. But listen, become a member at cafe.com slash insider. My guest this week is David Ignatius. He's a journalist who writes a bi-weekly column on foreign policy for the Washington Post. He's also a novelist of 10, soon to be 11, espionage thrillers. I speak with him about defining the Trump doctrine, the essential elements of a relationship between a president and their national security officials, and why world leaders need to stand for something more than self-interest. I also ask David if he thinks we'll be going to war with Iran. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Sometimes we all need a break from the constant news cycle. The Great Courses Plus is a great escape. I can pick up a new hobby or build my knowledge on virtually any topic, like the Great Palaces of the Ancient World and the Mysteries of Human Behavior. And there are a lot of mysteries to debunk today when it comes to a certain human's behavior. With Great Courses Plus, you can stream how-to courses on everything from sustainable living to appreciating wine, all presented by passionate, award-winning experts. And on the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen anytime, anywhere. As Stay Tuned listeners know, knowledge is not just an escape, it's also a form of power. In times like these, when our laws and institutions are being tested, courses like the history of the Supreme Court can help you understand how the highest court in the land functions. We talk a lot about the judiciary on Stay Tuned. Here's a chance for you to learn more. To start your learning, sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. For a limited time, stay tuned listeners get 40 days of unlimited access to the entire library when you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Preet. That's 40 days free at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Preet. David Ignatius, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Lots going on in the world of international relations and foreign policy. I'm going to ask some basic questions about that first, and you have enormous expertise, and you've been writing about these issues and thinking about them for a long time. So this might be a, a dumb question, but is foreign policy, is it art? Is it science? Is it a game? People like to use chess analogies. Is it guesswork? What is it?
1: There is uh, an art to diplomacy, like any kind of of a human interaction, uh, the way in which personalities work together does shape the outcome, uh, I, more and more uh, writing about this subject, watching it, I, I feel as if it's at its center about being careful, about thinking of the not so obvious consequences of your actions, the really catastrophic things that I have watched and written about were mistakes that we just kind of sailed into with our eyes wide open. The invasion of Iraq is a good example. We knew for months and months we were going to invade Iraq. All the warning signs were there. The national security bureaucracies were pretty much clearly opposed. We went forward anyway, and boom, we we ended up in this disaster from which we're really still recovering. Uh, I could think of other examples uh, so when I think about diplomacy, I often have the kind of dull but uh, essential theme in my columns, be careful. W- w- how does this end? What's, what's the imagined uh, endgame to this uh, strategy that's being laid out so boldly? And usually there aren't very good answers. Uh, it's, that's really the disturbing thing. That's true with this administration, obviously.
0: But it was true with Obama, too. They often didn't really know where they were going. The personalities of the people and the character of the people matter. What are the qualities of the people who are involved in diplomacy that help to avert these mistakes that you're talking about?
1: One thing I think that's important that Americans often aren't very good at is seeing the world through other people's eyes. You know, we see ourselves as exceptional. Other people should conform to our norms, our values. We don't tend to think, how does this seem to to the other guy? I thought that the Iran nuclear deal was highly successful, an agreement that benefited the United States and Israel. Think what a mess the world would be now if if it wasn't still being observed by Iran. And I think that that agreement was really the outcome of several administrations worth of diplomats trying to see the world as Iran saw it, trying to come up with an agreement that in the end would be acceptable to all the different opinions in in Iran. So I think that's an an example of of doing it right. Uh, I think at at his best, forgive me for using that phrase, Donald Trump does seem able to see things through other people's eyes. I think when he's in his flattery mode, you know, my dear friend Kim Jong-un, my Dreams of, of the future development of North Korea, you know talking like a real estate salesman, I think in a weird way in those moments he is he is trying to imagine what the world looks like to his counterpart so I think I think that's that's really important. I think being meticulous is important, you know thinking about the detail that got left out. I also have seen the most successful national security advisors are the people who have the best relationships with their presidents. Jim Jones was a wonderful general, but he had a kind of zero relationship with Barack Obama. It was a crazy appointment to make him national security advisor, and he wasn't successful at, at the job. Uh, Brent Scowcroft, typically the model of exactly how you should be as a national security advisor, one of his secrets was Bush 41 was his pal. They just used to right. tease each other, right. laugh together. Same thing with Brzezinski and Jimmy Carter, they were actually very close personal friends. So I think that personal chemistry would be the last thing with the principles within the group.
0: Is there sometimes a problem with too much personal chemistry where you might have a top advisor like the National Security Advisor or someone else who may be a little too in sync with the president, who may at times need someone to sort of argue with him more, or does the friend always have the better ability to make the argument? because they're comfortable.
1: I I think that what you want is the friend who is genuinely close enough to say, hey, wait a minute, boss, I'm not sure that really makes sense. I think the problem in the period after 9-11, where I I think the honest truth tragically is that we destabilized ourselves with our overreaction to events. There weren't enough people who would come into that bubble of anxiety. These these people were getting up every day and reading intelligence briefings about dirty bombs and and chemical weapons, and I mean, they they had reason to be really scared. I think we have to put ourselves back in that mindset. But there weren't enough people who said, "Hey, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not sure about that intelligence from Iraq. I I, I don't really think it's true that." The al-Qaeda and the Iraqis have any connection. Those people who will talk honestly to the boss are so precious. And we know that in life. I'm sure you had that experience as U.S. attorney. The, yeah. the line attorney who'd say, honestly, Mr. U.S. attorney, I'm not sure we, this case works. I don't think we're going to get a conviction here. That person was gold to you. The editor who says to me, David, I don't, th- I don't think this book is quite there yet. Those are such hard people to find in foreign policy and everything else. I hope when presidents find them, <laughs> those are the people that they hold on to. You have a sense with Trump that the guy who who says, sir, you're full of it, gets chucked the next week.
0: Do you think that it's possible for a president like Trump to find that golden person in the form of his son-in-law? So uh, it's
1: Jared and Donald. I'm not sure I really... Can get my mind inside that. I think Jared Kushner <laughs> is a person who sees himself as the dealmaker's younger advisor, whether that dealmaker was his own father, his father-in-law, somebody else. I think he just, he sees himself this tall, slender fellow whispering in the principal's ear, you know, that's the guy to go with. I think we can get a little more out of them. The concern I'd have with Jared Kushner is, does he know enough about the world to give that measured advice and say, sir, I'm not, I'm not sure this is going to work. Sir, I, I could worry about this guy we're working with so closely in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. Clearly, that's not Jared Kushner. Clearly, Trump needs somebody like that. I, I have the feeling, you know, what do I know? But I have the feeling that Mike Pompeo may have that um ability with Trump to say, ah, I'm not so sure, I'm a Mr. President, Pompeo has a funny way he'll say, you know, pre, 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 David, 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 let me, you know, and he'll sort of <laughs> right. try to get his point across by repetition. I can imagine him actually doing that with, with Trump. It's hard to imagine anybody else, but maybe Pompeo can do it.
0: Right. But but it may be the case, it sounds like, that, that Jared Kushner might have the relationship to say the things that you need to say, but doesn't have the wherewithal to make the right recommendations or judgments, which those are two different things. I think that's right. I think
1: uh, for the longest time, the two of them were embattled together uh, on the other side of the Mueller investigation that produced a a sort of bunker-like mentality at the White House with Kushner driven to the same sense of embattlement as, as his boss. And yeah, maybe now that that pressure is reduced, um, there's more room to you know, be critical, to, to raise a, a skeptical voice. But again, I, there's very little evidence to me that Trump really likes that kind of criticism, again, with the possible exception of Pompeo.
0: David, let me ask you this, this question. Maybe this is a question that's odd and overly basic, but I've always had a problem understanding diplomacy and foreign policy and international relations. And it may be because I'm very stuck in my mindset of being a lawyer. And there's always a sort of charter for conduct and how you make your decisions. There's a statute, there's a constitution, there's a body of law, and you can have disagreements about things that are ambiguous and that are vague. But when, when I was U.S. attorney, and I've told this story on other occasions, you know, the State Department had one goal, with respect to dealing with something, and maybe the Justice Department had a different goal, which was easier stated, and more obvious based on what the statutes were and what the FBI thought made sense in terms of law enforcement, and we were at odds with each other. What I've not understood is, what's the charter for a secretary of state or someone who's leading some important diplomatic mission or effort? In other words, are there reducible principles like, look, whatever is good for America, or avoid war at all costs, or some other simple formulation that then has under it more complicated sub-formulations, or is it something different?
1: Well, I I think the standard answer would probably be uh, the diplomat's mission is to advance the interests of the United States, recognizing that that's complicated because our interests are partly uh, realpolitik interests in the conventional sense. And We also have an interest in maintaining our values, the credibility of of our values. It's part of American power. So the the diplomat is trying to find the the balance between interests and values to get a a good deal done. Um, I've always thought that America's power in the time that, that I have been alive, I was born in 1950, has been about our network of alliances and partnerships around the world and the international institutions that we created. The United Nations, the World Bank, IMF, NATO didn't diminish our influence. Actually, they expanded it because they allowed us to work through all these different channels. Uh, There's this, to me, crazy idea that's developed that Trump is the primary exponent of, that these institutions weaken American power, I think it's the opposite to the extent that we have multilateral backing uh, we end up being much stronger that's why i thought it was completely nuts to abandon the trans-pacific partnership the trade agreement that would have been the cement for um, the rational way of containing chinese power going forward so i think good american diplomats have, have seen this network of power we have been blessed Again, we don't think about it enough, but we've been blessed with having really good allies after World War II. Our allies in Asia, in particular, have been fantastic. China has been a a nuisance, obviously, worse than that since the revolution, the the Korean War. But we had increasingly a strong Japan as a way to help contain uh, problems in the region. We had an increasingly strong South Korea. We helped build a strong Singapore out of the jungle. Uh, we had a strong and steadfast partner in Australia. Increasingly, we've had a strong India. Again, I just don't think people understand that it's those envelopes of power that help us to avoid the direct bilateral crunch where it's just us facing off against the adversary. We have these buffers that that absorb it. Again, I good diplomats understand that's why they spent so damn much time going to visit all these capitals. It's to kind of stroke our partners and let them know that they matter to us, not just in a kind of uh, diplomatic uh, cookie pushing way, but they matter to us in terms of our interests, in terms of how we project power.
0: So you mentioned the fact that people often don't understand this principle and the importance of alliances. Is Donald Trump one of those people?
1: Yes. I think Donald Trump is just um clueless about the value of our structure of alliances. He's a go-it-alone guy. He's always been suspicious of multilateral agreements. There's a reason that he's never been effective as a member of loan syndications or big business deals. You talk to people who do business in New York, as I'm sure you have, and one thing that's always amazing to me is how often people say, "I can't really tell you that much about Donald Trump. I never did business with him. You know, I first got into <laughs> real estate or banking. I just he just didn't seem like a guy I wanted to to have as a counterparty or have on my syndication team." He's been in his own sandbox. He's playing with others has never been his his thing. And so, I think in the international context, he doesn't he doesn't get it. He doesn't really value it. He blows off allies without realizing how much damage he's doing.
0: You know, I get a question a lot in my area of expertise, I suppose, law enforcement, democratic institutions, the relationship between politics and law enforcement, those kinds of things. And people will often ask, what will be the lasting damage, if any, from the ways in which Donald Trump is trampling norms, whether it's about the free press or it's about the independent judiciary? In this other area of diplomacy and foreign affairs, this habit that you're referring to of not fully understanding and appreciating the value of these alliances and doing things that are out of the ordinary and trampling on norms. What is the lasting effect of that? Is it in some way changing materially and permanently the world order or not? Well, the world
1: order was probably changing anyway. The American century was long in the tooth. We weren't wise after nine eleven. We certainly weren't wise in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the world saw that. So I think we were... Do for some adjustment, but not as as catastrophic as we've seen. My fear is twofold. First, I, I think in the beginning of the of the Trump presidency, I would often say and write in my columns that the basic momentum of American power was was so enormous, our military and our intelligence services, that it just would continue forward. You had Mattis as a strong. Secretary of Defense, you had Tillerson as a smart, if not all that great a leader of the State Department, but a smart guy, Secretary of State, and that we would contain the mischief that that Trump would do. I, I once heard from one of these cabinet members; he said to me, "I always." I have to remind myself a tweet isn't the same thing as a policy. So you can tweet, but that doesn't mean I'm going to issue an order changing our, our deployments or notifying allies. i wait until I get the policy directive. So I tended to think, you know, the damage will be there, but not overwhelming. I don't think that anymore. I think the damage will be significant. Uh, one reason is. The world doesn't stand still. Other countries see our weakness, our disorientation. I was traveling overseas recently, and a prominent foreign person said, America's lost. And I didn't really have a comeback to that. So I think in this period where we're lost, our political system is pretty much paralyzed. Other countries are are making up ground, China especially, but Russia too. Uh, So I I think by the time we get back to our senses, hoping that that we do, uh, I I think um, the world will will look different. The second thing that we'll have trouble recovering from is the world's realization that something that they never thought could happen, the world just really couldn't imagine that somebody like Donald Trump, as immoral, as crude, as deceitful, could become our president. But it happened so you and i can say well you know we'll come back we'll revert to the mean and we'll elect a different president down the road 2020 2024 but you know not always going to be donald trump's country but overseas people say we have to take uh, account of the possibility that what we never thought could happen could happen again because we realized that you're different from what we thought. You're you're the country that did elect Donald Trump. And I don't think we'll get that one back.
0: Is it in some ways they're thinking, you're not what we thought you were, you're just like us. You can elect a demagogue just like us.
1: Yeah. How do you tell uh, Turks uh, that uh, we're a beacon on the hill and they should stop following Erdogan's authoritarian government when Erdogan, in a sense, is just cut from the same... (laughs) cookie cutter as the American president, it's it's hard to do.
0: Is there such a thing as a Trump doctrine? And must every president have a doctrine? Is that, is that important? Is that something we foist you know, upon
1: them? Uh, Barack Obama's doctrine was don't do stupid shit. Um, that was a doctrine. It didn't help him much.
0: That's my doctrine in life, too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, Trump's doctrine is... Um, I think Trump's doctrine is destabilize the adversary so as to get the deal and there's not enough thought to the reality that when you try that for two years running as he has yeah you blow up everything you thunder fire and fury you put on sanctions the people eventually figure it out they kind of go they get the game okay well i see what he's doing And uh, it doesn't work so well. And that's what we're seeing now, I think, with Iran, with North Korea, with China. They've sussed him out. So uh, what's his doctrine? His doctrine, he would say, is America first. It's restoring national sovereignty and pride. Some aspects of that, I think, are probably positive. I think standing up to China, trying to rebalance the terms of trade with China, uh, even uh, pushing back Huawei before it builds a— global infrastructure for Chinese interests. I think those are positive things. I'm, I'm not sure he's going to accomplish them. I think the Iran policy basically is folly. I just I have no idea what he's trying to achieve there. I think the end result, because the sanctions are real and really punishing, may well be to create a failed state in Iran. Uh, and that failed state will be controlled even more viciously by the IRGC, the worst of the worst. If he has a real plan for getting something better, I don't see it.
0: So speaking of Iran, it's on everyone's mind. Everyone's very concerned. And you wrote, I think, less than a week ago, America and Iran are both oddly eager for war. Are are we going to go to war with Iran?
1: I don't think so. Um,
0: (laughs) When David Ignatius says, I don't think so, it doesn't give me great (laughs) comfort. I was hoping that someone as wise as you would say, no, Preet, we're definitely not. There's a tiny sliver of a chance. When you say, I don't think so. I can amp amp that up. But
1: (laughs) obviously, your your listeners are smart enough to know that I'm winging it. Um, The Iranians are risk takers up to a point. But my experience uh, writing about them is that they're not crazy risk takers. They get the message. And it seems uh, over the last several weeks that we've seen an example of that. I mean, just to briefly run through what I think I know, about May 3rd, U.S. intelligence got evidence that the Iranians were giving new instructions internally before they had basically been saying publicly and privately, we'll ride this out. We'll ride Trump and his sanctions out. We're not going to be destabilized by that. And I think they made a decision, which we learned of the beginning of May, that they would try to reset the table that they felt that just kind of hanging on wasn't, wasn't a good policy. So we observed a bunch of things, uh, different formations of their military and other forces, uh, loading missiles aboard little boats known as DAOs in the Gulf, uh, instructions to their proxies in Iraq and Yemen. So there were, there were a series of things. I think that intelligence was real, and it resulted in this sharp, Uh, movement of U.S. forces, uh, aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln, the B-52s, et cetera, et cetera. And from what I'm told, that message got through, that by May 8 or 9, there were different instructions going out to Iranian forces, and there were observable steps back. Some of the missiles put on board these DAOs were taken off. The Iranians used military force, but in a very deniable way. floating mines hitting ships off the UAE you know that's a deniable way to operate uh, the houthis their proxies in Yemen sending drones to attack a saudi pipeline they they were deniable gray zone operations not direct military operations they fired a missile on sunday at the green zone in Baghdad, but it landed a mile from the U.S. embassy. I mean, a missile lands a mile away is, I think, meant to send a message not to kill Americans. And I think that's the way this is being read by the administration today as we're talking. They've been up briefing senators and congressmen on on the intelligence. And I think the picture that the briefers are giving is probably pretty similar to what I just said, that The Iranians seem to have gotten the message. They seem to have pulled back from the most uh, aggressive formations of two weeks ago.
0: But what happens if the Iranians either intentionally or by mistake, given what you're describing as their probable strategy, a rocket attack gets a little too close or a pipeline attack is a little less deniable? What does America have to do with anything?
1: Well, I'd assume that anything that leads to the death of Americans triggers a kinetic response, military response. Um, I think they must understand that how heavy would it be? Um, would it trigger a, a spasm of Iranian retaliation? You, you have to assume, no, they're not crazy. They know how much power the United States has relative to Iran. They, if they kill Americans with one of their proxies firing something at one of our bases or at our embassy, and we retaliated, for them to step it up and get, get pounded, and, and they realize that. pre as you know, we're in a new era where Uh, Conflict is not an on-off switch. It's a rheostat. It gets dialed up and down in all these different domains. So I'll bet that right now there are all kinds of cyber operations that are going on against Iran that are having consequences. I have no idea what they are. I'll bet there are a lot of operations the Iranians are running against us in that that domain of conflict. There are lots of other domains, and uh, they're not visible to us, but I suspect in this period of tension there's been action um there ought to be some stability that emerges when uh, people are flexing their muscles i mean you have to be an idiot to get in a fight where a guy's going to beat you up so people, it doesn't usually <laughs> happen
0: um who's running the show with respect to iran in our government in our government oh well in our government i mean
1: who knows if you're talking about iran <laughs> i could give you an easy answer i mean who's running any show in Washington. The answer at the end of the day is the president. That's one thing we've learned, that the president's whims. People may talk him out of something for a day, a week, a month, but eventually, you know, he's going to come back to it. The Syria decision was an example of that. He kept saying, I don't want to have troops in Syria, and Mattis would cut a slow roll of him, yes, sir, well, that's really important. And he'd come back, I know, I really, I don't want to have I don't want to have to, finally, I think one of the worst decisions he made, he announced in December that he was pulling him out and let the Turks worry about it. But in a sense, the mistake was for people to think that they could sweet-talk him out of something that was really important to him because it doesn't seem to work with him. So he's the decider. Again, I think Pompeo is the one Trump whisperer who kind of gets to him and is able to pull him off the ledge.
0: You see people on both sides of the aisle talking about who does or does not want war, And you hear people say, well, John Bolton wants war. Politicians have a way of speaking about things. If you're just a thoughtful citizen listening to the chatter among politicians in America, how do you separate out what is true and what is smart versus what is not with respect to the motivations of the people in Washington?
1: It's a really hard question. I struggle with that as a columnist writing about foreign policy. I think a lot of what's published uh, isn't true. I mean, people tell things to reporters because they want to try to spin the debate, uh, have uh, an effect or blunt an effect. Um, People from foreign governments are always trying to spin us. So I think you have to spend a while trying to figure out what's really true here as opposed to what people are saying. Whenever I read, you know, six sources said, I always think, (laughs) that's nice, but how do you know that it's true? How, How do you really know that this is true? Um, in foreign policy, that could be uh, much more difficult. You know, take the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. What really is said behind the scenes in those contexts? I have a feeling that it's 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 sharper than is anything that's said publicly, but I have a feeling that whatever the head of the CIA or Secretary of State Pompeo may say privately is blunted by Donald Trump's public embrace. So, you know, you have all these different factors going together. I come back in this government with this president at the end of the day, it is what the president says that's going to be decisive. And no matter what his senior team are trying to do in private.
0: What about what the president says publicly, as in tweets and the use of, you know, pretty bellicose language? I think he said things like, if Iran does X or Y, we'll end them as a nation. Is that helpful? Is it in service of a madman theory of politics and diplomacy?
1: He thinks it is. You know, he's he's convinced that when he does that, it has the useful effect of reminding people. We, we do have the ability to vaporize Iran. I can't imagine a situation in which that would happen. But, you know, he, he likes to, to remind people. He actually seems fairly calibrated in his actual use of military power. This is not a president who I think wants to get us into war, quite the opposite. One thing about Donald Trump that I've come to realize is that after he went catastrophically bankrupt, you know, bankrupted multiple companies, he became much more cautious. He stopped putting his own money into deals. You know, he began basically franchising his name. He's not the biggest risk taker in his business life. He hasn't made a lot of much money, it, it turns out. But he, after the bankruptcies, I think he dialed down the, the risk. I have a feeling that there's more of that than most people think with his foreign and military policy. I think talk of how he's ticked off at John Bolden, who you know seems to want to go to war with everybody on the block. I think that's probably right. I think Trump probably thinks, jeez,
0: you know, this guy is, is going to get me into a mess uh, that I don't want to be in. Well, he made the joke recently about Bolton, right? He's the one who has to temper Bolton. Can you believe that? Do you think that, that shows some awareness? Well, I think it it shows a useful awareness of
1: Bolton's um, historic uh, over enthusiasm for confrontation and the threat, presumably the use of military force. I think Bolton is um, the proverbial, you know, if you can call it, mannered man with a mustache, a bull, he's the bull of the China shop. (laughs)
0: Um, Outside of Iran, what's the most difficult foreign policy predicament the U.S. finds itself in? So I think the most interesting thing that's happened uh,
1: recently, most consequential, maybe the most consequential foreign policy decision of Trump's presidency, was the decision to really try to stop the crown jewel of China's technology sector, Huawei, from expanding its networks around the world by first forbidding American companies from selling them technology, and then there's a second corollary people haven't noticed, which is that American companies will be prevented from buying technology from Huawei. Uh, The advocates of this policy very deliberately want to decouple the technology world. This is a big stop sign, more than that, a fence against the expansion of China's one real technology champion. Huawei is a world-class company. A number of these Chinese companies are, are not that, but Huawei is. And Trump is not alone in thinking that this is a a potential long-term threat to the U.S. The people in the intelligence community would absolutely agree. They've been arguing for 10 years that we ought to take steps to limit Huawei's uh, ability to grow and install its networks around the world. So I think this was really a big deal. Um, I think the Chinese are still struggling to figure out what to to do about it. Uh, If it's successful, it's a real setback for China. Um, Huawei is an almost dominant company, but it still needs to buy chips. The Chinese are not able to make the chips that drive advanced digital systems on their own. They, They either steal them or buy them, and so they're still vulnerable. I think one thing that people in the Trump administration have said, and I think they're probably right in this, is it's better to confront China today than 10 years from now. Ten years from now, they'll be a lot more powerful and it will be much harder to draw lines and alter the terms of trade, uh, insist that Huawei play by rules closer to international rules. So, it's a really big deal. Uh, The Trump administration, I think, characteristically didn't discuss it enough internally because there are a lot of complicated knock-on issues. There are a lot of legal issues you probably have thought about pre there's a lot of alliance management. We're basically asking our allies to go along with us. We're saying, you're gonna to have to choose between us and the Chinese, between Huawei and the alternatives that are coming along. Nokia, Samsung, and Ericsson are the three companies that you know, in another year or so will be able to challenge Huawei. So we're asking the world to take a pause here to reset and keep the Chinese from being dominant. Will they go along with us? I don't know. But I think this was a much bigger deal and people have generally recognized.
0: Fair to say that we're already a little bit late. You said better to deal with China now than 10 years from now. Reasonable argument to say we should have done it 10 years ago.
1: Yeah. But, you know, it's as I like to say, it's never too late to do the right thing. Um, <laughs> sometimes it is. Well, sometimes it is. But, but I, I don't think – in this case, I, I've written my column about this. Uh, I've just tried to think okay, if it's basically makes sense to challenge Huawei, how do you do it? What are the problems with the way the Trump administration has chosen to it And there are some real ones. We wanna live in a world where there is technological coexistence. A world where there are fences is one that will make everybody worse off, reduced economic growth and benefits for, for the Chinese and for us both. Where's that sweet spot, and how do you get there? And I think that's a debate. we talk about all this stuff that doesn't matter so much. This is something that I'd love to see people talk about more.
0: Do you think that the rhetoric surrounding immigration in this country, particularly with respect to some parts of the world, affects the world's perception of what America is and has become? I think to
1: the extent that we had moral standing in the world, it's because people really thought that we were different selfish, venal, nationalistic interests, smallness of mind that characterizes so many countries. People thought, rightly, that America was, was different. We had this kind of inexplicable idealism, generosity, openness to other people. You know, my grandparents came to America and benefited from this um, amazing openness and generosity that was at the core of the American character. I think we become less um, less generous as a people. I, maybe it's because we're, we're not as rich and dominant in the world. I'm not sure why. But I, th- I think the world perceives us a little bit differently. You know, I think of the movies. American movies have been dominant through my lifetime. But you look at the kinds of movies that we used to make and the themes and the idealism, the American values that ran through them. Think of the, the, the classics that the world watched and then compare them to, you know, the Avengers, the latest uh, superhero blockbuster. It's just different. It's just a different image of America that, that's projected. I think the world sees that. I, I think the final point I make on this is that it's very hard to have outsized power If you're just seen as a selfish, nationalistic country, unless you stand for something larger than yourself, an aspiration that transcends national interests, you're you're kind of stuck. And my worry is that the Chinese are building this idea that they talk about with their Belt and Road Initiative, their immense investment in Africa, in the developing countries in Asia, you know they're there with capital and infrastructure, they're there for selfish reasons, but they also keep propaganda line we're we're you know we're all gonna get rich together work with us don't don't worry about communist party leaders let's let's get rich together. It may be a mercantile appeal, but it's larger than just uh, China, I think or at least it's seen as that
0: How many times have you watched the Avengers david well i <laughs> not very
1: many. But I did go. I did go see this latest one, and uh, I sat through all three hours and ten minutes of it. My wife and I staggered out of the theater, <laughs> just thinking, "Why do we do this?" But
0: no spoilers. Don't tell. Don't tell I people won't, what no,
1: happened. I I would never want to do
0: that. But at the end of the day, you're saying something that seems very obvious, but seems to have been lost from current discussion. And that is, generosity on the part of a power, whether it's a superpower like the United States or anyone else, is also effective and smart, and can actually help you arrogate power to yourself. Fair?
1: Yeah, I think we all n- know in our personal lives that, that people who are confident and generous just you know, have uh, opportunities to interact with others that the person who's tight, selfish, self-interested doesn't. I mean, we, we all see the selfish person coming and who's you know, only out for himself. And I, it's, it's rare that that person succeeds in the kind of really powerful way uh, I again I it's one of the mysteries that I'm be st- sorting out for a long while how it is that America came to elect as president at such a transparently selfish self-interested person uh, as Donald Trump who to me seems so different from from our national character we were always a kind of reticent, people look image of the Marlboro Man, the cowboy didn't say much. You know, we've got this loquacious braggadocio <laughs> guy. I mean, it's like it doesn't really seem like the, the American character, but people voted for him.
0: Well, although people do speak about the American tourist, the ugly American who's pretty loquacious when they go to Europe. So in that regard, it's not completely alien. I don't mean to
1: say that there aren't a lot of Americans like Donald Trump. Clearly, there are. It's just that wasn't our, our national yeah. image, the laconic, speak softly character. Not only is, those were the images we presented, but that's what people admired. It's how we saw ourselves. Don't tread on me. I'm a tough man or woman. It's that frontier heritage. Donald Trump is not a man of the frontier. He's not really connected with it. I don't think he thinks in those traditional American images.
0: David Ignatius, thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Take it's care. It's a pleasure. Bye. My conversation with David Ignatius continues in a special bonus for members of Cafe Insider. To join, head to cafe.com slash insider. Thank you to everyone for supporting our work. So often i in the show talking about something wonderful that someone did or said that didn't get a lot of attention and I thought was worth amplifying. This week... I want to talk about something wonderful that happened that did get a lot of attention and rightly so, and I'm sure you heard about it, but I think it's worth talking about as much as possible, both because it's good to acknowledge also because it sets an example for others perhaps to follow. And finally, because it points to a major problem in the country that hopefully people who are running for president and others will take some more effort to help. And that is when the billionaire investor, Robert F. Smith, who founded a company called Vista Equity Partners and also became the richest African American in the country, was the commencement speaker at Morehouse College. I've been a commencement speaker at many law schools and never occurred to me to do the following, mostly because I don't have the wherewithal to do it. But as I'm sure you've read in various reports, the heartwarming story about how he announced in the midst of his commencement address that, as he put it, we're going to put a little fuel in your bus. What does that mean? he decided he was going to take care of all of the student loans going forward of everyone graduating in the class of 2019. What effect that had on the class of 2018 and the class of 2020, uh, unclear. But at least for the almost 400 students who are graduating this year, they will no longer have the burden, the crushing burden of student debt over the course of years and years, the kind of thing that causes people not to pursue what they really want to do what causes people to make decisions that are more about money than about their passion, than about what they want to actually contribute to the world. So I can only imagine what it must have been like, not just for the students, but for the parents of the students and family members of the students to get such a surprise on that day. As Morehouse College President David Thomas put it, quote, this was a liberation gift, meaning this frees these young men from having to make their career decisions based on their debt. This allows them to pursue what they are passionate about, Now, isn't that true of everyone who goes to college or doesn't go to college? I think we'd be all better off if people didn't have to make decisions about how they wanted to contribute. If they wanted to be a teacher, they could. If they wanted to be a police officer, they could. If they wanted to go into the Peace Corps, they could. All sorts of things that they might do if they didn't have the crushing debt from college and other higher education. It also raises other questions. But why it should be necessary for people to have to rely on the largesse of a billionaire to be able to have better choices going forward. For example, here's the view of an author, Anand Giridharadas, who makes an interesting argument in his book called Winners Take All. And he has a view of philanthropy that you don't hear that often, but it's an interesting one. And when we're thinking about, he says, quote, but a gift like this can make people believe that billionaires are taking care of our problems and distract us from the ways in which others in finance are working to cause problems like student debt or the subprime crisis on an epically greater scale than this gift. There have been other notable and good and generous examples of people of great wealth providing opportunity and removing student debt and removing even entire tuitions from various schools, including NYU Medical School, which is now tuition free. That was made possible in large part by a gift from Ken Langone, another billionaire who has now had the medical school named after him. The bottom line is I think this is terrific news. And what Robert Smith did is a wonderful thing and wonderful, not just for the students at Morehouse this year, but for everyone to think about and contemplate and perhaps emulate. But more importantly, I think this issue of college debt and the hamstringing of people's dreams is something that everyone needs to be thinking about a lot more on a policy level. And I think there are a number of people who are running for president in 2020 on the Democratic side who are addressing the issue. And one of the things that I think we should be looking at very closely in deciding who to support or not support is how they view this issue, because it's not going to be solved by a few well-meaning billionaires. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, David Ignatius. Tweet your questions at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call 669-247-7338 and leave me a message. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to at cafe.com. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews help new listeners find the show. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the CAFE team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned. Simply Safe knows how important it is to feel safe at home. That's why they developed a security system that keeps working even if the power goes out, even when the Wi-Fi goes down, and even if a burglar smashes your keypad. Simply Safe has some of the fastest response times in the industry. If there's an emergency, they're ready to send help 24/7. Go to simplysafe.com/preet to check it out. That's simplysafe.com/preet.